Welcome back to Half the Battle. I'm your host as always, Daniel Levy, your co-host Shaq. We're going to be talking UFC Philly, Edson Barbosa versus Justin Gaethje. And Shaq, it's going down this Saturday. Two of the most exciting fighters in lightweight history are going to clash for our main event bragging rights. Who is the most violent man? This is going to be a great fight. We know that Justin Gaethje... I mean, for the most part, he's pretty much a guaranteed $50,000 bonus. He's guaranteed fireworks. And when you match him up with a guy like Edson Barbosa, who's one of the owners of some of the most spectacular knockouts in UFC history, we know that either a guy's going to get broken very, very brutally or somebody's going to get knocked out unconscious. One thing's for sure. The winner of this fight, maybe even the loser, so they might both be walking home with 50K, maybe even 100K in bonuses because there's no way that this fight is going to be boring. And also... The the whole card, man, it's a really good one. Obviously, you got Jack the Joker Hermanson in the co-main event versus the perennial top 10, David Branch. And not to mention the fight everyone wants to see between Sodiq Youssef and Shaman Mraz. Uh, they stacked it up for Philly, all violence. Yeah, Philly's a fight town, and they deserved a good card. They, they, uh, they're they going to get one on Saturday, and the fights are pretty good from top to bottom. I know my boy Eddie Alvarez was like... They didn't just come to Philly without asking my permission. Unfortunately, Eddie decided to, you know, go make money and go fight Japs and one and, you know, go go make your millions over there. Eddie, go retire peacefully. You know, my boy Eddie Alvarez is fighting at 170 pounds, taking on these guys that have lost two of their last three fights and, you know, guys with like 10 and 5 records. Uh, I respect Eddie Alvarez for getting to that point, my man. Like, go ahead, cash out, bro. You already won that UFC belt. You already won that Bellator belt. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't he win the Dream Belt back in the day too? Yep. So, I mean, the Underground King's doing his thing. Well, Shaq, let's break down this whole card start to finish because first up in the Bantamweight division, we got Alex Perez, he's 21-5, and and Mark De La Rosa is 11-1. and And currently, they got Alex Perez minus 330. The comeback on Mark De La Rosa is plus 270. Now, Shaq, I mean, look, when the fight was announced, I favored Alex Perez, but minus 330 seems like a bit of a stretch. You know what kind of a result he's coming off of. So I got to know, man, do you think he comes out here and has a minus 330 uh, worthy performance? Yeah, you know, Alex Perez had a lot of hype going into his fight with Benavidez. That didn't work out. He took some unnecessary damage in that fight. And uh, now he gets to make his comeback fight against a guy like De La Rosa. Now, we saw a De La Rosa fight at 135 before against Tim Elliott on short notice. Things definitely didn't go his way there. He got smashed on. And then he came back against the uh, Elias Pettis and, you know, was able to do his thing to him. Uh, we know Elias Pettis, although he's a very tough guy, he's, you know, not UFC level. And then uh, his third fight against Joby Sanchez, you know, it was a very close back and forth split decision. I feel like De La Rosa's grittiness, his toughness was able to uh, just slightly edge him over Joby's uh, point fighting style. Tough guy. I definitely think he, uh, and he's a black belt in jujitsu. He's, you know, he's got good wrestling, decent boxing, but, you know, I think he's very flat footed. I think he's very slow and I think he's very hittable. His chin definitely ha- hasn't uh, been tested like an Alex Perez is going to test that chin in just with his opponents that he's fought so far. But, you know, I'm, I'm really not that impressed with Mark De La Rosa. You know, I think Perez, although he's coming off a bad loss, I mean, we're talking about Joseph Benavidez, the number one guy in the world. Or I think Formiga actually is actually. But uh, for Benavidez is not Formiga out. So he's the he's the number one guy in the world. But maybe that was just a little bit too much too soon. I think as long as he's fine, I think Perez is the better fighter in every aspect of the game. I think he's got better striking than De La Rosa. I think he's got better pressure than De La Rosa. I think uh, he's got better kicks than De La Rosa. His jiu-jitsu, even though De La Rosa is a black belt, I've seen him smash on the map before. Perez, 
He also got smashed on the map, but I, I like his Darts chokes. I like his uh, his takedowns. I mean, his Eric Sheldon performance. I mean, that was a beat down from start to finish. Not to mention he starred Shorty Torres in less than a round. So I, I'm not sure about minus 330, but I do ultimately think Perez gets a win here. I just think De La Rosa is not on his level. Both these guys are very tough. Obviously, De La Rosa, the black belt in jiu-jitsu, like you mentioned, makes his UFC debut on short notice against Tim Elliott. Put up a decent effort up until he got choked out. But, man, since that point, obviously you saw the Elias Pettis fight. You saw the Joby Sanchez fight. Now, a lot of us thought, not necessarily that he lost the Joby Sanchez fight, but at least when uh, the fight went to the scorecards and before the decision had been announced, we weren't sure who won that fight. And he was like minus 250 going into that spot. That's all I got to say. Now, here, it could be a similar situation where we don't know who wins. And, you know, my boy Alex Perez is minus 330 here. He might still come out with the victory, but it could be tough to call. But at the same time, Alex does have the physicality. He's the much bigger guy here. And I feel like the fact that he's fighting this one at Bantamweight is only going to aid him because you know that cut to 25. I mean, look, the cut to 25, you're on the brink of your body fat. Then you look at a guy like Alex Perez who really struggled. I mean, he's too big for flyweight. So I'm glad to see him at Bantamweight. I actually think he could have a bright future there. Whereas with De La Rosa, I like the guy a lot. He's scrappy. He's exciting to watch. But I feel like he's more suited for, uh, for flyweight, man. So that being said, I don't know if Alex is going to necessarily run through him because I think Mark De La Rosa is a very tough guy. But ultimately, I do see Alex Perez landing the harder shots. I think his wrestling's on point. I've seen him knock guys out. I've seen him tap guys out. I've seen him grind out decisions. I've seen him do the whole bit. So that being said, I will go with Alex Perez here. But I'm not confident he runs him over or anything like that. Next up in the flyweight division, we got Marina Moroz. She's 8-3. and three, And Sabina Mazo is 6-0. and oh. Currently, they got Sabina Mazo, minus 155. The comeback on Marina Moroz is plus 135. Well, Shaq, Sabina Mazo, she trains at a Kings MMA, which we know is obviously a really good gym for producing all-violence type fighters. This is an all-violence card. This is UFC Philly. But that being said, man, look, she's known for her head kick knockouts, but the two girls she knocked out had a 1-1 record and a 5-5 record. Now, I'm not sitting here saying Marina Moroz you know, as a world beater or anything like that. But one thing I will say, she ain't no one one girl or five and five girl. So I got to know, how do you see this fight going down? Marina Moroz kind of has that reputation of being an airstriker, making a lot of tennis tennis grunts when she's in there. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and she uh, doesn't really land much. So, you know, I definitely put her in that category, but she definitely is way more experienced than Mazo. Mazo's been whooping up on a bunch of soccer moms down there in LFA. And uh, she's been doing her thing with a high kick. She's young. Uh, she I don't want to compare her to Macy Barber, but it is impressive to see, you know, consistently seeing fighters very young in age she's 21 to already be in the spot that she's in you know Moroz, i hear she's doing uh she's at att now so uh you know we'll see if she's got any improvements in her game but i gotta go with mazo i think she's actually going out there to inflict damage not punch the air but uh, i mean i wouldn't be shocked if this is one of those typical you know close ass uh, split decisions yeah, I could definitely see this fight being close just because pretty much every Marina Moroz fight is super close. Her style where she punches the air, she makes those sounds. For whatever reason, the judges seem to love that shit. But I will say one thing right now. Dude, she lost to Angela Hill in a striking match. And it's like, Marina, this is your one area that you allegedly excel at. You know, she's a, they tell me she's this Ukraine boxer and stuff. And you got outstruck by Angela Hill. You know what I'm saying? But that being said... About the experience Marina Moroz has, finished Joanne Calderwood in the first round, had a very closely contested decision against the former champion Carlos Barza. Now, 
you can sit here, you can call the Joanne Calderwood uh, win a fluke, you can do all these things, but the bottom line is that win and that Carla Esparza fight, that's more than anything Sabina Mazo has ever seen in her entire MMA career because, once again, the two highlight reels she made her name off of was against a 1-1 one one girl and a 5-5 five five girl. So I'm not necessarily convinced she comes out here and head kicks Marina Moroz, but I will say this. She probably lands the more effective shots because Marina punches the air. That's one thing we know, and it's not something that's going to change either. So for that reason, I'm going to go with Sabina Mazo via a majority decision, but... I would not sit here and lay the house on her or anything like that. Let her prove herself. Let's make sure she's the real deal. And uh, we'll take it from there. Now, next up in the Bantamweight division, we got Ray Borg. He's 11-3. And, and Casey Kenny is 11-1. Currently, they got Ray Borg minus 320. The comeback on Casey Kenny is plus 260. Well, Shaq, obviously you know we've uh, had Casey Kenny on the show on Half the Battle way before... He got that call to make it to the UFC. I mean, we've been singing this kid's praises for a long time. We've been saying this is a guy that UFC needs to sign. Now they finally signed him, so I got to know, man. There ain't no more fucking around because he's fighting a top five guy in his debut. You think he comes out here and gets the big upset? Yeah, this is a tough task for Casey, man. He's got to come out here, take out the number three flyweight in the world on a week notice. And history would say that, you know, this spot generally doesn't work out. In comparison to Casey and those other fighters, Casey just fought last week. So, you know, he is coming in here a little fresh, and Borg hasn't fought in 17 months. Borg's had a lot of opponents for this fight. This possibly could be, I mean, this this is a situation where Borg has everything to lose and Casey Kinney has nothing to lose. And, you know, I'll go out here on a limb and say if Casey Kinney, you know, is making his debut on the flyweight division, I already think he probably is you know, a top 10 to 15 uh Flyweight, man, you know, I, I definitely think he beat some guys in the in the flyweight division that they got ranked currently. I think Casey's a solid grapper. He's got that judo background. He's a college wrestler. I mean, he's got contender series experience, six rounds of contender series experience. So the UFC lights, you know, aren't really too much for him. He's fought on the main event of LFA, uh, champ, champ in LFA. So this is a definitely a credible opponent that Borg's taken on short notice. Now, Borg, we know what Borg's capable of. He's the transition master. You know, they don't call him the Taz Mexican double for a reason. He definitely is good at scrambling. He outscrambled Formiga, which is, I mean, fucking hard to do. Look at what Formiga's been doing. But... The big question is the 17th month layoff. I mean, how's Ray Borg really going to look this time? You know, uh, it's a lot of big ifs, man, and he's risking a lot taking this fight. And, you know, I would and I would generally wouldn't say that if he was fighting a can or like, uh, you know, some some uh, kid that, you know, really hasn't fought anyone off the street. But Casey Kinney is a credible guy with experience. He's got wins over CJ Hamilton, which is a flyweight win you need on the local scene. Uh, he's got wins over... Uh, I mean, we we all know he got robbed against Adam Mantlin. And, I mean, he's beating guys at 135, too, man. And he's not just beating him. He's dominating him. It's not even close. So I think that this has every possibility to be a closer fight than uh, a lot of people think, man. You know, I know he's Casey Kenny is not very well known, but this is just uh, a name value thing. We know Ray Borg. We don't know Casey Kenny. So I think if Borg's thinking that he can bail himself out, you know, with the takedowns, I, I think he might have another thing coming, man, because Casey's grappling is on point. So, you know, I actually think this fight's going to play out a lot closer. I can't necessarily pick a winner, but I think that there's a lot of value on Casey Kinney in this spot, man, because he's way fresher. Uh, I'm not saying that Borg's been taking damage or anything, but we know what's happened with these guys coming off that title fight, man. Ray Borg, you know, he's got a lot of things going on. Not not just those things, but, you know, the Tom Vaughn incident with him getting sued, uh, all these different opponents, man. It could be a perfect recipe for Casey Kinney, man. Uh, and he's not scared of this moment, so... I think it, I think there's value on Casey.
Ray Borg has more pullouts than Planned Parenthood. I've never seen anything like it in my life. But as far as this matchup's concerned, what's really interesting to me about a guy like Ray Borg, obviously you know his scrambling ability. Ever since his UFC debut against Dustin Ortiz, uh, you saw that this kid, you get this guy on the mat, don't expect to dominate him there at all. Expect uh, endless transitions. And obviously you saw that in his last win against uh, the very renowned Juicy A Formiga. I mean, he went out there, he took Formiga's back. The issue with this matchup is I'm not entirely convinced that Casey Kenny is just going to opt to have a, scram a scrambling fest with Ray Borg like Louis Smolka did, like Formiga does, because we know Formiga wants to backpack everyone. You backpack Ray Borg, chances are he's going to turn into your guard. That's exactly what happened. But as far as Casey Kenny, this dude is a lot taller, a lot longer than Ray Borg. And being the taller man doesn't matter if you don't know how to use it, but guess what? Casey Kenny does know how to use it. He knows how to keep fights on the outside. He's five foot seven, taking on a five foot three man. Very well rounded. I'll even go as far as saying that Casey Kenny is more well rounded than Ray Borg because we've never really seen any danger from Borg on the feet. I know I saw some improvements in that Formiga fight, no doubt about it, but there was never a moment where it was like, oh man, he just rocked Formiga bad, or wow, look at that punching power. It was just. Oh, Ray Borg decided to finally throw punches. Like, we've been waiting for this for years, you know, because I know that Dustin Ortiz fight, he threw a couple spin kicks, but Ray Borg, for whatever reason, has never let his hands go until the Formiga fight. So that was impressive. Casey Kenny doesn't have an issue letting his hands go. He doesn't have an issue letting his kicks go. Now, I can't sit here and claim that if Ray Borg takes his back, that Casey Kenny is automatically going to get out, you know, turn in, get on top. There's no guarantee of that, but from what I've seen, man, this kid Casey Kenny, he can scramble his ass off, which, worst case scenario, Ray Borg does take his back or something like that. Casey seems to have the ability to scramble out. Very competent on the mat, but more importantly, I think he's got the tools to keep this fight standing, frustrate Borg, and do what Justin Scoggins did, and pick him apart, man. And the layoff, not to mention the title fight letdown, when you come off that title fight loss for whatever reason, I mean, whatever reason, the whatever reason is that your fucking dream just got crushed. So for that reason, you don't come back with the same motivation. And I, I'm under the impression that he might just be coming in because he hasn't fought since 2017. He needs this paycheck, man. I'm not going to count Ray Borg out. He's a fucking big favorite for a reason, but I'm actually go with the upset here, man. I think this has the recipe for uh, Casey Kennedy to get a victory here. Next up in the middleweight division... We got Kevin Holland, he's 14-4, and, and Gerald Mershart is 29-10. and 10. Currently, they got Kevin Holland minus 200. The comeback on Gerald Mershart is plus 170. Well, Shaq, what's interesting to me about this fight is Kevin Holland, yeah, he's got the skill advantage here for sure, and he seems to have the skill advantage in a lot of his fights, but one thing about him, you know his nickname is Big Mouth, you know he likes to play in there. I know you remember that Will Santiago fight when he was a minus 800 favorite against a, you know, a Friday night uh, journeyman, and uh, he played with him for three rounds. He was talking to Dana the entire time. So I got to know, man, do you think he's going to come out here and take Gerald Mershart seriously, or do you think uh, Holland betters are going to have a sweat? Yeah, this is going to be a good fight. In, in terms of just how they match up, we know that Mershart's a guy that he likes to come from behind. He's got a lot of submissions on his record, but... He also has been finished a bunch of times as well. He's also been submitted a bunch of times as well. So we know that Kevin Holland's got some jujitsu, and uh, I've been seeing Kevin actually on the jujitsu circuit a lot these days, man. He's out there doing uh, jujitsu competitions out there in Texas. So uh, I think that although GM3 probably on paper has the uh, 
the MAC credentials, I think that I wouldn't be shocked if Holland was able to get the better of him on the mat as well. I mean, Kevin's going to play around. He's going to talk. But, you know, there's a purpose behind that, man. It's just, uh, I guess, frustrate his opponents. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's just what he does. He wants to put on a show, man. The guy, they don't call him the trailblazer for no reason. So, you know, I think uh, that this possibly be could be a close fight. I mean, just because, you know, skill set wise, even though Kevin is a lot farther than him. Mershart's a vet, man. The guy's got like, I'm assuming, I want to guess like over 40 fights. Um, this this is his 40th fight. Yeah, he's got, this is his 40th fight. Uh, I mean, the guy's been fighting. He's one of those guys that turned pro at a very young age and had to learn uh, trial by fire so Mershart definitely has to be respected you know there was no shame in his last loss to Hermanson I mean look when Jacket's on top I'm, it's pretty much over so I think it could be a close fight I do think Kevin will scrape out a decision he just land the more flashier strikes but got a lot of respect for GM3 uh, he could make this a close fight if he just doesn't play any games with Kevin just gets Kevin to almost beat himself in a sense um but uh, I think Kevin feel like it could be lined a little closer, but I still favor Holland to get the job done. But he's got to cut down on some of that plan. Yeah, it seems like Kevin Holland has a lot of fun in there, man. He really enjoys his job. He just loves fighting, and he's very good at it too. Obviously, most of what we've seen from him is on the feet. You know, he's a very tall guy for the weight class, six foot three. Uses that length very well. Can keep fights on the outside, like you saw in the the John Phillips fight. Who we know John Phillips has got serious one punch power, and Kevin Holland. Did a very expert job using the long strikes, the teeps, the jabs. And against uh, against Tiago Maheda, you got to see the kid's ground game because you know he is a brown belt, right? So also, he does have a knockout win over the very touted prospect, Jeff Neal. So Kevin Holland's nothing to be fucked with. I mean, he's very serious, man. As far as Gerald Mershart, as experienced as they get, he's a true vet. If, if your game is lacking in any area or you're not quite up to par, you're not a top 25 guy, Gerald's not only going to beat you, he's probably going to finish you in the first round. I mean, the guy's got a wealth of submissions. He's knocked guys out with body kicks. He's such a – like we said, this is his 40th fight. Gerald Mershard is not a guy to be counted out. But the big difference here is that Kevin Holland's athleticism – in my opinion, is what's going to be the difference here, man? I just feel like he's a completely different athlete. Look, they both have the mindset. They're both extremely tough. They're both seasoned, experienced. But Kevin Holland, he's got that. <laughs> I mean, dude, he's just a better athlete. He's faster. He's stronger. I feel like he can keep this fight standing, pick apart Gerald Mershart. Don't play around too much, even though I know he likes to have fun. I see uh, Kevin Holland winning a decision as well. Now, next up in the featherweight division we got Kevin, the Angel of Death, Aguilar, he's 16-1, and one, and Enrique El Fuerte Barzola is 15-3. and three. Currently, they got Enrique Barzola, minus 115, Kevin Aguilar is minus 105. Shaq, this is a hell of a matchup, man. You going with the Angel of Death, or are you going with the strong one? This is a great fight. This could potentially be, be fight of the night when you got a, a Peruvian warrior like Enrique, and then you got a, a country boy from Texas like Aguilar, uh means there's going to be a lot of blood, man. This is a great matchup. Aguilar pulled off a solid win over Rick Glenn in his debut to get a win over a guy like Rick Glenn. Even though Rick Glenn's not the best guy, you know, skill-wise, just the fact that he's got all that experience, former WSOF champ, uh, he beat Bermudez. I mean, that was a solid win for his debut. I mean, Kevin's got big power in his hands. He definitely paid his dues on the local scene with that 15-1 and record before coming into the UFC. He beat UFC vets like Damon Jackson. He beat Ton Lee. So, I mean, Aguilar's no slouch coming in here, man. Uh, I think this is Enrique's toughest opponent to date. You know, he's very comfortable in wars. Uh, he does a good job of drawing guys into that power. 
Um, you know, and Barzola, I mean, let's not forget this guy won the ultimate fighter at 155 pounds. Now, I know the competition level wasn't that high, but just the fact that this guy is pretty much outsized in every fight and he ruins pretty dominantly for the most part, uh, you know, it's very impressive. Uh, you know, he arguably could be undefeated in the UFC. You know, he had that loss to, uh, to Bosniak to start things off. And I mean, ever since then, he moved down to ATT full time and, We've seen in the past, man, ATT is a proven fact. They changed lives down there, man, and uh, I think they changed Enrique's. Um, you know, I think Aguilar, I would give him the slight edge on the feet just due to his power. I mean, this guy hits like a truck. You know, I, don't, I wouldn't say his boxing's the best. I wouldn't say his chin's the best. I wouldn't say his footwork's the best. But one thing I will say is if you stand with him for long enough, at some point he will crack you with a devastating shot. Uh, and he's got big power in his hands. As far as how him and Enrique match up on the feet, he wouldn't say Enrique can't strike with him at all. You definitely see, like I said, Kevin can be beat on the feet. It's just you have to know how to maneuver. And Enrique's got all the skills, in my opinion. I think he can, you know, utilize his quick footwork. He's definitely the faster, uh, you know, more agile guy out of the two but but we know Enrique's bread and butter is those takedowns and you know those takedowns can't be underestimated uh you know I see some people saying they aren't impressed with his top control but you know you got to understand this guy's outsized man to hold some of these big dudes down is very it's very tough but you know I I disagree with it in a sense as well because the more and more he gets those takedowns uh <laughs> eventually you break like in the Mowgli Benitez fight yeah Mowgli was getting up for a little bit but in that third round Enrique broke him and flattened him out and started pounding on him a little bit i think this is a good fight i i give aguilar a slight edge on the feet just with his power i, I give enrique the edge on the mat for sure with his dressing i've seen aguilar dumped rather easily by damon jackson more than twice more than three times uh, i've seen him taken down against tony kelly as well on the lfa scene so i would say aguilar does have a weakness weakness in his game and that's his uh takedown defense but if you brawl with aguilar that's a recipe for disaster you know i think enrique is going to be a little more a little more keen on the takedowns this time but i agree man i think aguilar is a very live underdog you know if enrique plays around a little bit too much he could be uh waking up with the smelling salts in his nose but i, I favor enrique just slightly i think he's got more ways to win although aguilar is better stand-up i could also see enrique having success in the stand-up a little bit with some calf kicks with some footwork and just, you know, playing a little bit smart. I think he's a little bit smarter than Aguilar, but I think Aguilar is very live. But I see this being a 50-50 fight, but I'm going to go with Enrique by a close decision. One thing I really like about Enrique Barzola is the dude's confidence. He's not scared of anyone. He doesn't care who you are, how hard you hit. The guy's going to walk you down. He's going to clasp those hands and uh, take you for a ride, man. I mean, he does the old school Matt Hughes slam where he picks you up, walks you across that cage and puts you down and very fun to watch, especially for a guy from that part of the world. You know, Peru, you don't often see serious grapplers from South America, and that's exactly what Enrique Barzola is. And I know someone's going to be like, oh, what about Yoel Romero, Cuban Olympian? It's like, yeah, you're right. You got me on that. But, like, the majority of the guys from South America don't have the best wrestling. And that's just facts. Well, Enrique Barzola does. And ever since he moved to ATT, I mean, you see the improvements. You see the win streak he's on. One thing I noticed about Barzola, though, and – I have to mention this is his stand-up is kind of suspect, man. You know, he's very confident in himself, maybe a little bit too confident. You know, he fights with his hands down, and he's been put down a couple times. I mean, you saw Gabriel Benitez put him down that first round. You saw him put him down that third round. And against someone who, 
isn't fearing the takedown as much, uh, it could be a knockout win. And with Kevin Aguilar, one thing I'll say about him, look, Benitez has unbelievable kicks, but Kevin Aguilar's hands, this guy hits like a truck. And not to mention, I mean, obviously he's from Texas, but look, the guy's got some Mexican in him. You know real Mexican warriors come to fight every single time. And that's exactly what Kevin Aguilar embodies in there. The guy, listen, I saw him drop guys with jabs, okay? So imagine what's going to happen when he lands his right hand. Imagine what's going to happen when he lands his left hook. The guy's dropping guys with jabs. That's how hard he hits. And it just seems like when you tie up with him, he's super strong. Now, you mentioned the Damon Jackson fight. 100% he did get taken down by Damon Jackson. I also saw him get back up from said takedowns and knock the guy out. And with Ke with uh, Enrique Barzola, one thing I've noticed is he doesn't really hold too many guys down. Now, it could be the reason you mentioned that he is kind of outsized for the weight class. But that being said, I don't want to sit here and and you know ponder why can't he hold guys down. I just want to run with the fact that he doesn't really hold guys down. So that kind of gives me faith in Kevin Aguilar being able to get back up because what I did see in that Damon Jackson fight when he got taken down, you know, it's not like he got taken down and then he got his guard passed and he got mounted and smashed. It was just he got taken down, he retained his guard, pushed off the hips, got back up. Like, well, what else do you want from the guy? So. To me, I don't think his ground game is suspect. I think it's an MMA fight, and you can get taken down. But when he got taken down, like I said, he retained his guard. He got back up to his feet. So I don't think the guy isn't out here training jiu-jitsu or, or like Curtis Melender or any shit like that. I, I think he's a well-rounded guy. It's just that Enrique obviously has the strength in the wrestling department. But that being said, I think Kevin Aguilar is going to make Enrique feel his presence. I think he's going to feel that power. I think when Enrique is really confident, and he feels no threat by you, he'll go out there and stand and bang with you. You saw that fight with Bochniak. Uh, whether you agree or disagree with the decision, watch that fight, and you're probably wondering to yourself, Enrique, why aren't you shooting for takedowns? Now, one argument is, well, Bochniak was moving so much, maybe that's why, but my argument is he felt comfortable standing with Bochniak. Bochniak doesn't really bring any threat in the stand-up department. That's why he was able to do that against Matt Bissett. He felt zero threat whatsoever standing. That's why he stood up with a guy like Matt Bissett. Well, I'll tell you what right now, Shaq. He is going to feel threatened by Kevin Aguilar. He is going to be shooting on takedowns right away. And if he's able to get them, keep that top control, grind it out, win a decision, I would not be surprised. But I'm thinking Aguilar gets back up to his feet and in the space and in the time when this fight stays standing, I see him landing some devastating shots. And I think he will be the guy to expose uh, the suspect stand-up of Enrique Barzola that I've been talking about for a while now, man. So... I'm going to go with Kevin Aguilar either via late TKO or via decision. Now, next up in the lightweight division, we got Ross the Real Deal Pearson. He's 20 and 15. And Dez the Predator Green is 21 and 8. Well, Shaq, currently they got Dez Green minus 445. The comeback on Ross Pearson is plus 355. So, listen, the, the line is so wide because everyone's saying that Ross is on his way out. And I know he kind of is on his way out, but. I mean, the last time Des Green finished anything, I mean, maybe someone can let me know. So what I got to know, man, is do you actually see Des Green coming out here and putting on a minus 445 type performance? Or do you see this being another fight where Des Green fights to the level of his opposition? It's going to be another close split decision. I think Ross is probably on that borderline of whether or not he should still be fighting or not. I mean, it's pretty obvious. You know, he's trying to rack up these last few paychecks. He gets paid fat, so he's trying to rack up these last few uh, paychecks before he retires. And he's still really not even that old, man. Uh, <laughs> I was looking at his age. I think it was, what, 32, 33? I, I thought he was a little older than that, but he's uh, he definitely doesn't take that type of damage like how he used to, man. Uh, he wears his damage really bad these days. You know, one punch will cut him open these days, and he'll just start looking real weathered and old out there. And that's, you know, that's what happens when you 
fight the best guys in the world, man. So, you know, shout out to Ross Pearson and the, and the great career he's had. Des Green, you know, he's a very untrustworthy guy. Uh, I think he's got Ross beaten in the athleticism department for sure. He's a D1 conference champion wrestler. I think Ross probably has better boxing. I mean, Des, Des likes to tilt that chin way up in the air. Uh, his chin's really good. I mean, Tyson Moff hit him with his best shot. So I, I will say that's a good trade of Des. I mean, his chin is... His chin is rock solid. But uh, I got a favorite, Des. You know, minus 440, I, th- I don't think it's really necessarily whether he goes out here and has a minus 440 performance. I think that line is just indicating, you know, him winning this fight uh, regardless. So, you know, I am going to pick Des. But, yeah, I mean, you're right, man. He likes to fight to his opponent's uh, his opponent's level. He, he He's known for doing that. And he's known for crying bad decision. I mean, uh, <laughs> this guy is a, a, an habitual uh Bad decision crier, man. He thinks he wins every fight. But I think he gets the job done, whether it's close or Atlanta. So I wouldn't be shocked if Ross goes down. I think, you know, he's at that point. I mean, that McDessie fight. And, you know, McDessie's a guy who's, you know, I, I'd consider a point striker as well. And, I mean, McDessie bloodied him up badly. Had him doing a chicken dance towards that end really bad. So I wouldn't be shocked if Ross hit the deck here again. But uh, I'll, I'll go by Des Green with a, you know, a 30-27 decision. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you got to favor Dez just because of the youth, the athleticism, but the reality is, man, for whatever reason, Dez Green always fights to the level of his competition. I don't know what it is. I mean, they gave him a similar, I don't, not similar matchup in terms of styles, but Glayson Tebow is pretty much at the exact same spot in his career that Ross Pearson is, you know what I mean? And that's a fight where it's like, all right, Des, here you go, man. You know, you took these really tough fights on short notice against Michelle Tractor Prezerish and Rustam Habilov overseas. Like, here you go, man. Just style on Glayson Tebow real quick. Post USADA, Glayson Tebow. And it's like, dude, like, why are you getting tagged with big right hands? Why, like, why aren't you knocking this guy out? And I know it's easier said than – I know I'm the guy that's sitting here talking about the fighters and, you know, well, Daniel, why don't you get in there and knock him out, right? I, I get it. I, I 100% get it. You know, who am I to criticize? But still, still, I, I just expected more from Des Green, the youth, the athleticism, just where he is in his career. But for whatever reason, he likes to fight to the level of his competition. Here with Ross Pearson, I actually will go on record and say Ross Pearson has cleaner hands than Des Green. It might not matter, though, because his chin is definitely not uh, better than Des Green's. But still, man, I I, I feel like this is going to be a close fight. I feel like this is a dog or pass situation. I As a pick, I have to lean Des Green because of the reasons I mentioned. But, you know, Ross Pearson's no slouch, man. Back in his day, beat Chad LaPree, beat Paul Felder. I mean, you remember when he knocked out George Sotteropoulos on that season of Tough. Obviously, the Gray Maynard KO, the Sam Stout one. So, I mean... Ross Pearson's done the whole bit, man, and I got so much respect for a guy like that. Whenever he decides to hang it up, I will always be a fan of Ross the Real Deal Pearson. I mean, the guy, win or lose, always comes to fight. I've never seen Ross Pearson hump someone's legs. The dude's a warrior. He's the real deal, man, so I fuck with Ross Pearson. But I'm going to go with Des Green via 29-28 decision, and I'm hoping that Des Green proves me wrong in the sense that I hope he doesn't fight to the level of his competition. I hope he goes out here and shows out, not because... I want to see Ross lose. That's not the deal at all. But just because it's like, Dez, come on, man. Get your signature win already. Like, let's see you get one highlight reel. Like, let's see you knock someone out. You're getting another gift on a silver platter. Like, take care of business. So I'm going to go with Dez, but it's a dog or pass situation. I think this is going to be a close fight. Now, next up in the strawweight division, we got Jessica Aguilar. She's 20-7, and, and Marina Rodriguez is 10-0. 
with Shaq currently they got Marina Rodriguez minus 340 the comeback on Jessica Aguilar's plus 280 so I gotta know man in a, a women's fight you see a minus 340 here now do you think this is gonna be another split decision type fight is there value on the dog Aguilar or is it just like uh the shit we've been saying for the last million years that uh Literally anyone can beat Jessica Aguilar, except Jody Escobel. Yeah, you know, I think uh, Marina's going to roll here. You know, although she didn't get the win in her debut, uh, she went to a draw with the number 13 girl in the world at the time. You know, I thought she showed her great Muay Thai skills, uh, her knees, her, her elbows. And we know that Randa Marcos, I mean, the fact that she fought her in her debut, you know, one thing Randa's really good at besides whooping up on bullies and girls that talk shit to her. One thing she does, man, she does have very good first rounds, man. She she definitely does have dominant first rounds, and that was the same case with uh, Marina. I mean, she won the first round against Androv, uh, Angela Hill first round finish. Um, I mean, she wins that first round a lot, uh, Grasso as well. I don't think there was any shame, you know. It was kind of strange to see it being scored 10-8, but I thought Marina came back and won the next two rounds with that pressure, with those calf kicks. Like I said, with those knees and elbows in the clinch. And, you know, I think that's going to carry through to this fight. I think we're going to see a better version. Of, a, you know, I don't. she didn't even really get double-legged. It was more of a head and arm throw by Marcos, one of those uh, scarf holds. And uh, Marcos is strong. I mean, that's what Marcos is best at. She's a wrestler. So I think it's this fight's going to be a lot more easier. Jags, Aguilar's coming in here on short notice. Uh, I just think that she's going to be here, there to get hit all night. I think the only reason why she won a fight was because Jody's harmless and she decided to punch the air that night. So I think Marina actually gets a finish here. I think Jag probably tries to tie her up early, but I think at some point we reverse that and just start teeing off with knees and elbows in the clinch. And I could see a cut stoppage here. You know, I think Jag cuts very easily. She's, you know, definitely up there in age. But, you know, I got respect for her, but I, I think Marina gets a finish here or uh, a 30-26. Yeah, I, I feel as if uh, the flying knee will be a big weapon in this fight. Look, I just see Marina Rodriguez bringing too much to the table for Jessica Aguilar. I don't think the, the line is too wide. Jessica Aguilar, she might get a takedown or two, but guess what? Randa Marcos got a takedown or two, and Marina got back up every single time. And not to mention... You guys know about Courtney Casey, right? You know how Courtney Casey, she's like 2-6 and six lifetime when fights go to decision. Well, when Courtney Casey fought Jessica Aguilar 30-27 on all three judges' scorecards, and she got taken down a couple times, she beat Jessica Aguilar off her back. So I just see, you know, worst-case scenario, Jessica gets on top. Firstly, she doesn't keep top control that well anyways, but let's say she gets on top. I see Marina busting her with elbows from bottom and on the feet, the heel the knee, the elbow. I see Marina Rodriguez feasting on the carcass, and I just hope that the UFC keeps Jessica Aguilar around for another fight. I got Marina Rodriguez here by destruction. Next up in the featherweight division, we got Shaman Marais. He's 11-2, and two, and Sodiq Youssef is 8-1. and one. Currently, they got Sodiq Youssef minus 140. The comeback on Shaman Marais is plus 120. Shaq, I mean, dude, these two are going to stand and bang until one man falls. We already know the deal. The question is, uh, who's going to fall? Yeah, this is a great matchup. Sadiq, the way he looked in his fight with Suman, I know Suman's a can, but that was some of the best raw power I've seen displayed. Uh, I know Suman, there was no resistance there, but I mean, some of the power he let off uh, was definitely impressive. And, you know, Shaman Marais, he's a guy, he's kind of... He's kind of, I would describe him, I don't want to say underrated, but, you know, he kind of flies under the radar a little bit. I mean, this guy, low-key, is one of the one of the good damage inflictors in the featherweight division. I mean, uh, you know, he's got the Muay Thai credentials. I think he's a Muay Thai world champion down there in Brazil. He's actually very technical, man. Uh, although he's known for swinging these big haymaking left hooks and these straight rights, I mean, he's got some technicality in that game as well. I mean, his elbows... 
I will say they they impress me a lot, uh, and they they definitely do damage. He's looking, he's definitely going out there to you know cut something open, slice something open. And Sadiq, on the other hand, his fight with Mike Davis on Contender Series, I mean, the power displayed in those fights from both of them was very impressive for guys that were outside of the UFC. So I think this is a great matchup. I see both guys having a bright future. I think uh, how they match up, what we've seen in Shaman, you know, there's a beat fight got dominated in that fight. I guess the beats a phenom. I mean, I don't know, but not really but he got his ass beat in that fight but more so in these last two fights against matt sales and uh julio arce you know it seems like shaman definitely likes to play a little calm technical game and then it seems like at some somewhere along the line he, he likes to give you that false sense of security and then just bomb off on a shot that uh you can't rely now sales the reason why sales did a lot better than Arce, even though Arce went to split, I, I still think Sales did better in the fight was just due to the fact that Sales had a lot better defense than uh, than uh, Julio Arce. You know, Sales is very good at rolling with shots, deflecting shots, and Sales was able to keep that pressure in him. And one common thing that remains the same in Shaman's fights is that third round, he is barely holding on. He's one of those typical one-shot power Brazilian strikers that have, you know, suspect cardio in that, in that final round. So I think Sadiq Yusuf has a good style to walk guys down and pretty much tee off on guys. We've seen him do that a lot. The one time he's ran into trouble in his one loss, look, the facts is he got caught with two straight rights. He got wobbled both times. He was teeing off on the guy before that, but two straight rights, he wobbled. And then, uh, what's his name? Gomez hit him with his signature move, and, you know, he finished him. He was a little too cocky in that fight. I definitely don't think that's going to be the case here. Sadiq Yusuf is probably the better overall fighter with the jiu-jitsu from Loy, the stand-up, the power. Like I said, some of the best raw power I've seen at 145. But he's still got to be on his P's and Q's with Shaman because Shaman's one of these guys that likes to give you that false sense of security. And then next thing you know, one shot might just do the whole deal, man. You know, Shaman's a little more experienced in the UFC. He's definitely been, and I will go ahead and say, he's been in some tougher fights than Sadiq has at this point. But I think Sadiq's the better fighter. I think he translates to be the better fighter. So I do favor him. I think he definitely needs to be on his P's and Q's in this fight because there's still, I don't want to say questions about his chin. You know, Mike Davis definitely hit him, uh, hit him very hard. But when you got a technician like Shaman, who's very good at inflicting damage with the blood, man, I think uh, that it could possibly be uh, one of those wars where you're holding your breath the entire time. But I do favor Sadiq to get this job done. I can't wait for this fight because obviously with Shaman Morais, one of the most devastating Muay Thai fighters in the featherweight division, that dude's straight right left hook is unbelievable. I mean, that fight with Arce literally does nothing for about 30 seconds. And when Shaman decides, I'm going to let my straight right go, he drops uh, Julio Arce with the first punch he throws. So Shaman Morais has devastating power. And obviously those elbows you mentioned, man, I want to emphasize on that. When Shaman Morais is in the pocket... Those elbows, the upward elbows, the downward elbows, I mean, the dude has the whole Muay Thai arsenal at his disposal. He is serious with his striking. And not to mention, he just hits fucking hard, man. Shaman's got real raw power. And I've known about Shaman for a long time, since back in the WSF. And guess what? I've also known about Sodiq for a long time. And with Sodiq Youssef, he's a guy that was always hyped up to, to be the prodigy coming out of Maryland, to be... You know, the the Nigerian Conor McGregor, because when he hits guys, they tend to go down, man. And that fight with Mike Davis on Contender Series was probably the best fight I've ever seen in Contender Series history. They should have signed both guys right there. My boy Mike Davis had to go back to the regionals. He's won two fights in a row since then. A third-round TKO and a first-round Kimura, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. So you'll expect Mike Davis in the UFC very soon. But as far as Sodiq's concerned, 
dude, this fight is unbelievable. So let's talk about Sadiq's loss. Obviously, Luis Gomez hit him with that signature move, which, by the way, Luis Gomez has done to other people before. I heard an interview with Sadiq after that fight. He said that loss was the best thing that ever happened to him because Sadiq's a guy that no one could touch him in amateurs. No one could touch him in pro. I mean, he literally won every single fight he was in. He felt like he was invincible. So he needed to have that loss for him to take things to the next level. And now there's no more... Oh, first L time because he already got his first L out the way and I feel like he's matured big time since then you saw him against Conor McGregor's teammate knocks him out in the first round and don't sit here and give me no early stoppage bullshit because that kid didn't get back up so I mean that that shit was no early stoppage and then obviously the Mike Davis fight man best fight in contender series history what I loved about that was how calm Sadiq Yusuf is under fire i mean mike davis was hitting him with some very hard shots you never saw sodik lose his composure and man what a devastating calf kick what a devastating left hook his right hand i feel like he's got the whole package as well now the difference here between him and shaman shaman's more of a counter striker shaman so opportunistic with that straight right left hook leg kicks but i feel like shaman swings a little bit wild or a little bit wide compared to sodik yusuf i feel like when shaman gets a bit excited uh not that he abandons technique because he doesn't, but that left hook comes from the hit, man. And he can get away with it because he hits so damn hard. But against a guy like Sodik, I feel like Sodik might be the faster, better athlete. And you don't often hear that about a guy like Shaman saying, oh, Shaman's fighting a better athlete this time. Normally, it's Shaman that's the better athlete. I don't think that's the case here. So I actually see Sodik landing the more damaging shots and finishing Shaman Marais in the third round. So I'm going to go with Sodik Yusuf here for the biggest win of his career. Now, next up in the light heavyweight division, we got Paul Craig. He's 10-3, and three, and Kennedy Neschuku is 6-0. and oh. Shaq, they got uh, Paul Craig facing a Fortis MMA Nigerian. How do you think this one ends? Yeah, this is a very good fight. You know, this is that typical fight that they put Paul Craig in. They generally test Paul Craig up against their 205-pound prospects. It's kind of gone hot and cold for him. Paul Craig, he's one of these guys where I like to I like to consider him a very low percentage guy. You know, it seems like the only way he's going to win is with very low percentage techniques. Two wins in the UFC against Ankalaev and uh, what's the Brazilian's name? Uh, Frankenstein. Frankenstein da Silva. You know, Frankenstein da Silva. I mean, from what I heard, the guy was having hot sweat or cold sweats, hot sweats. <laughs> Basically, he was pulling a Tom Breeze before he was uh, <laughs> fighting. <laughs> and uh, they said the guy just panicked. And Paul Craig was able, I mean, look, he was going for head and arm throws in that fight. He was, uh, but he was able to capitalize on a very mentally weak man. And he goes into his fight with Tyson Pedro, who was 5-0 and at the time, you know, a pro for a very short time. And I mean, the second they got together close up, I mean, you just saw the physicality difference. I mean, it didn't even matter. Uh, I mean, his bad techniques did matter. And Pedro wasn't using, you know, the best techniques. It was just he's physically outmatched in a way where now he has nothing to offer. And, and just the big glaring mistakes that he makes in his stand-up. And I think Pedro floored him with a jab as he was doing a kick. And uh, the fight got stopped. He got crucifixed. And uh elbowed so then he goes into his fight with Khalil Roundtree who you know I consider uh, I mean Khalil's a bottom of the barrel 205er even though he's I mean Gokan Saki's also a bottom of the barrel two, uh, 205er but uh, Khalil Roundtree I mean that was his most impressive performance I think that that southpaw look at, at distance 
just gave Paul Craig nightmares, man. Anytime he tried to close the distance, he got countered. Uh, it was a very easy night for uh, Khalil Roundtree. He was out there doing the Anderson hip thrust and, you know, all type of stuff, man. So this fight with Ankaliyev, I think uh, Ankaliyev, I think it was just poor energy management, man. It seemed like Ankaliyev was very gassed uh, towards the end of that second round, and he definitely got taken down. Uh, Paul Craig definitely took him down. In comparison to Kennedy and Chukwu, uh, I mean, he's got that 83-inch reach, man. Uh, Paul Craig's actually a little longer than these guys that he's been fighting, like Crude and Ankaliyev. Um, and he's not going to have that here. And, and it's not just the reach advantage. It's a it's a fighting someone that knows how to use that reach advantage. You know, it's fighting someone that necessarily isn't coming out here. You know, I say this, uh, I, you know, I think Anka Live and, you know, and crew probably went out there with the mindset that, you know, this is going to be uh, really easy. You know, they I don't want to say they have those type of personalities, but I feel like Kennedy just maturity wise, uh is a lot more calm. That's why he comes out there with that specific style. Doesn't take any, uh, you know, stupid risks. He comes with that fallback plan if he has to with the, with his uh, jab and his straight left. And he, I love how he's added in that left high kick to his game. He's got the six fights now. This guy beat a 5 and one guy at 2-0 and with two, uh, 10 months of pro experience. You know, I think Paul Craig's uh, his best days are behind him. I think it's pretty much, I don't want to, I mean, I think he'll get another chance after this. But I think uh, it's reached a high for Paul Craig. You know, I think that ain't alive one was a good story for him and you know we'll never forget that you know one of the greatest comebacks ever but I feel like nothing's changed the big question in this fight is does Kennedy have a ground game and you know I think he's got a good enough ground game to stuff Paul Craig uh Paul Craig's one of these guys where people are considering his jiu-jitsu to be a lot better than what it really is you know I think that he, yeah he's got some tricky tricky arm bars he took Crute down but uh you know I feel like Crute man just they don't they don't present the same fight Crute's shorter than Paul Craig. He's, uh, his, you know, his reach is just not anywhere near the same. Now he's in there with a long, imposing, uh, Nigerian African savage. So, you know, I think that Paul Craig, I think this fight's going to go a lot more similar to the Roundtree fight, you know, to the, uh, Tyson Pedro fight. I think Paul Craig makes too many mistakes out there in space. I think that the distance for him to shoot these takedowns is going to be way off. And I think that, you know, at some point Kennedy either catches him with the left high or right uppercut and Craig goes down and, and you know, the hammer fists are, uh, shortly, coming after that. I think that Paul Craig's techniques are all low percentage, man. I think this guy just has to pull off a fluke to uh, win a fight. And when that's the case, man, he's not going to have much success in this company. And that's why he hasn't had much success in this company. And I don't expect to see any improvements. I expect to see a lot of improvements for Kennedy, you know, training at the camp that he's training at and just how greeny, uh, young he is in his game, man. So I think that Kennedy actually rolls here. I think he puts Paul Craig down somewhere in that first or second round. But if it goes three rounds, you know, I don't consider Paul Craig to be one of these vets that uh, can uh, drown guys in the late rounds. You know, I think Ankaliyev, like, I watched that fight again. Uh, Ankaliyev had his head down in the dumps after that second round, and I don't know what the deal was. And, I mean, his fights after that have been shit, too, besides the Pratchett. You know, his last fight was complete shit. So I think Kennedy's, uh, even though he doesn't have on paper, although all the well-rounded skills as a crew, you know, crew out of brown belt and ankle live, I'm sure he's got some grappling credentials as well. I just think mentally Kennedy is above those guys, and I think that'll take him to a finish one here. Look, the thing with Paul Craig is that he hasn't evolved, and he only brings one thing to the table. He's a fluke submission guy. So he's not the toughest. Uh, his striking is complete garbage, and 
one thing he does have, he's got some decent takedowns. He's taking a couple guys down, but it seems like whenever he does that, for whatever reason, he gives up position. So it's like even when he's in his realm, he's given up position. And, you know, people are bringing up how when Kennedy was 2-0, 2-0, okay? He fought that tough veteran, and the guy took him down and almost had him in that Darce. Well, almost had him in that Darce. Almost had him in a Darce means that Kennedy got out of the Darce. So you're telling me this 2-0 guy got out of a submission against a black belt when he had less than a year of pro experience, and now he's a 6-0. He's had a bunch more fights. He's actually coming off an eight-month layoff because he's been putting in work at Florida's MMA. And let's just talk about his superior genetics. I mean, the guy's from fucking Nigeria. You heard Israel Adesanya talking about how there's guys that have never trained a day in their life, and they're walking around looking like Francis Ngannou. You know what I'm saying? So it's just, it's just a different gene pool, man. And you know, if this was someone that was skilled fighting Kennedy, oh, okay, yeah, then maybe we can start talking about how Kennedy's too green and this and that. But Paul Craig, like Paul Craig, should be like one in and four in the UFC. I mean, the ankle life fight was about to be a thirty twenty six. It was a hail mary sub. Aside from that, he beat Frankenstein De Silva. Congrats. I mean. When Khalil Roundtree feels no threat by you whatsoever, when Khalil Roundtree is as confident as he's ever been inside the octagon against you, that, that's all I need to know, man, because everyone knows that. Oh, all you got to do to beat Khalil Roundtree is take him down one time, and the fight will be over shortly after. Well, Paul Craig couldn't even sniff a takedown against Khalil Roundtree. I mean, you saw Khalil Roundtree five hip thrust in a row. I mean, it was like he embarrassed, he disrespected Paul Craig inside that octagon. You know what I mean? And I know people are talking about how Kennedy's got these pillow fists. Uh, I challenge you to take one of those pillow fists. Let me know how soft he really hits, right? Just because he has more of a point-fighting style, just because he likes to fight behind his jab, just because he's not a one-punch knockout guy, even though if he hits you on the chin, you will go down. I feel like that's disrespectful towards Kennedy saying that the dude doesn't have punching power because he likes to set up his jab. That to me just said, that, that, that to me just means that he's a smart fighter in there, and for a guy with less than a year experience, you see the improvements. So... Listen, anytime someone's trying to take him down, he got right back up. I can only go based on what I saw and based on the trajectory and the potential I see. And I see Kennedy's potential. I mean, this unfinished product, I think, is going to come out here and smash Paul Craig. And friends don't let friends bet on Paul Craig. So I'm going to go with Kennedy Neschuku via first-round knockout. Now, next up in the strawweight division, we got Michelle, the karate hottie Watterson. She's 16-6. and six, And Karolina Kovalkiewicz is 12 and 3. Shaq, currently they got Carolina minus 140. The comeback on the Karate Hottie Michelle Watterson is plus 120. It seems like Michelle Watterson is in the best form of her career. You saw her last fight against Felice Herrig and obviously with Carolina coming off the brutal knockout loss, but this ain't Jessica Andrade no more, so I gotta know, man, who you got in this uh, strawweight matchup. Man, Karate Hottie's been looking real good lately, if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> She uh she's a beautiful girl, but uh yeah this fight's real interesting because Carolina she's coming off that knockout loss and yeah it was to Andrade before that she beat uh, Escabel she beat Felice and Watterson you know man I've I've shot on her heart in the past and uh, I've called her a quitter uh, and you know these last two fights she definitely didn't quit man. Uh, I guess I would say that you know she's kind of making games. I guess that that gym that she built in her house. Uh, has uh you know been doing some dividends carolina yeah she's got that reputation of being that perennial top three four five girl in the world but now after that knockout loss at uh how old is she now i'm gonna guess 34 35 i would not be shocked if we started seeing a little you know a little decline in carolina you know i feel like 
that's kind of how some of these females uh, tend to go. But, you know, I feel like this is just a typical strawweight fight where, you know, although I feel like Carolina has definitely uh, accomplished a lot more, I feel like some of her performance just haven't been what they once were. You know, the Rose fight was July of 2016 took those fights with Joanna and, Cla uh, and Cladinia. I remember when I bet her to go to the third round of Cladinia, and she couldn't even do that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, nah, man, this is a close fight. I feel like uh, there is a chance where people's uh, relying on that opinion of Carolina being, you know, this clear-cut top uh, five girl. You know, I feel like those thoughts uh, could be a little inflated, man. You know, I feel like she is on a decline a little bit. Karate Hadi can play, a, you know, a pretty good distance game with those kicks, man. Uh, although I don't think it's the most high level for the female division, you know, it can kind of throw them off a little bit. The head and arm throw is pretty good. Carolina's got those knees in the clinch. Close fight, but I'm going to side with the girl who I think uh, has been making improvements. I think it's going to be a close fight, but got to side with the underdog here. You know, I think it's a 50-50 fight, so uh, I see value in the uh, underdog. Man, good fight. Look, Michelle Watterson has three things going for her. A sidekick, a head and arm throw, and she's very good looking. And with Karolina Kolbakevich, obviously she's got that win over the champ, Rose Nama Yunus. And what I like about Karolina's style is, firstly, she definitely has better boxing combinations than Michelle Watterson does. That's for sure. Michelle rarely lets her hands go. It's mostly about the kicks with her. So Carolina's got the hands edge all day. And in the clinch, that's where it gets interesting because we know Michelle Watterson's got that head and arm throw, which she tends to hit on most of the people she fights. But Carolina's pretty vicious in that clinch too. You know, those knees, the elbows, the way she beat Rose Namajunas. So, you know, I hate to be like, oh, if this stays standing, I, I got Carolina. If this hits the mat, I got Michelle. But that's honestly how I feel, Shaq. So I'm going to slightly lean with Carolina here via decision. Now, next up in the featherweight division, this is going to be interesting, Shaq. We got Josh Emmett. He's 13-2. and two, And Michael DeMenis Johnson is 19-13. and 13. And currently, they got it a dead pick'em, minus 110 apiece. So, man, this is interesting. Now, do you think that if... Josh Emmett wasn't coming off the brutality at the hands of Jeremy Stevens that it would still be a pick'em here? Do you think he'd be a bigger favorite? Or do you think no matter the time that these two meet, it will always be a pick'em fight? I don't know. It's tough to say. You know, Emmett, Emmett's an interesting guy because uh, at 55s, I didn't necessarily think he had to. I thought he could have stayed at 55s and had a had a successful career. He beat uh, Hot Sauce. Uh, he beat John Took. Uh, I mean, he had some good wins. He, he used that. I thought he hit very hard at 55s. Uh, you know, Michael Johnson, on the other hand, I mean, he's got wins over Poye, Ferguson, Edson Barbosa. Uh, he knocked out Emmett's coach. <laughs> Emmett is taking advice from a guy that he knocked out. <laughs> but uh, but uh, as far as how this fight goes, man, that's the big question. Is Emmett okay or not? You know, so I'll go ahead and say there is a chance where, I mean, Emmett takes a shot and just goes down. I mean, there is that there is that chance. But if I take out that, you know, if I take that out, if Emmett's okay, if he's fine, if he's not mentally, I mean, I'm sure he's mentally shook a little bit. He'll think about that for every day for the rest of his life. But this matchup is really good because Michael Johnson's just an unreliable ass guy. And Michael Johnson is on the decline. That's been a fact for a long time. And at 45, I'm not, I'm not going to say it's hard, but I think at 45, I think he's going to be more of the disciplined point fighter that just picks his shots very wisely and probably uh, wins more decisions than finishes in comparison to his 55 days i see emmett as really a guy with uh, he's got 
underrated footwork for sure. He's definitely got some nice little side to side. I will say he's very good at letting his uh, finding room for his punches to land because when you fight Josh Emmett, I mean, what's the one thing you got to worry about for is the guy's power. And, you know, guys, what do guys do? They come in with the shell game. And Emmett does a pretty good job of uh, finding his way around those shells. And he, uh, I mean, when he when he lands, he, guys definitely feel it. He, ha- he was a part of the first 10-7 round. Uh, Michael Johnson's under the impression that Sertanejo, uh purposely fell down. That's what he said in his interview, and he doesn't think Josh Emmett's punching power is all that. And that could be a fact, man. You know, Emmett coming in with his ranking, you know, he was the number four guy, but that ranking was kind of, I don't want to say given to him, but, you know, it was that typical case of, for example, a Showtime Pettis going up to 170, beating a top five guy. Now, all of a sudden, he's ranked in front of all these guys that put in a lot more work than he has. So I feel like Emmett kind of is a case of that. So, you know, the the jury's still out on him. I, I think he's a good fight. I mean, he's got wins over hot sauce tuck uh he's a good fighter but you know how they match up i definitely think michael johnson is a little chinny i'll go ahead and say that i don't know if he can get flash knocked out with one shot but i do think he can be dropped um and i think that there's a good chance emmett does drop him i mean look emmett although he doesn't have like all the knockouts in the world some of his knockouts are very impressive like the christos giagos one who i think that's his only knockout loss uh and the Lamas one you know i know Lamas has been knocked out before but i mean emmett my god left him dead <laughs> and uh and you know emmett had to take the payback for uh against jeremy you know uh this is going to be a good fight. You know, I feel like if it goes to three rounds, I feel like Johnson's the more disciplined guy. Could probably land those good shots that look really good for the judges on points. Uh, be disciplined. I think he's for a, such a a guy with the reputation of being this hot, cold. I mean, he is a hot, cold guy. That's facts. But I think uh, he's got a very disciplined striking style when he's focused. But that's generally when he runs into trouble is when he gets taken down. It's going to be a good fight. I actually think this is a kind of a pick ish type of fight. I agree with it being pick because although I feel like I slightly favor Michael Johnson, I feel like Josh Emmett hits like a fucking truck and has a puncher's chance the entire time you know i feel like he does slow down a little bit but i have seen him at times kind of maneuver around and able to manage his power and uh, carry it into the late rounds as well and some of his decision wins like against uh, hot sauce and uh john tuck so I do think he can go three rounds with josh i mean with uh, michael johnson i think it's going to be possibly a very close fight but how i see it playing out is i see emmett dropping him in the first round but then i see emmett possibly you know unloading the tank a little bit too much and then i see the next two rounds probably going a little similar to the des green fight at 55s you know i know des is a lot bigger than emmett michael johnson probably landing some one twos maybe wobbling emmett making him a little hesitant to pull the trigger make him start thinking a little bit more and you know win that close split decision but i see this fight being very close what's interesting to me is i actually agree with michael johnson saying that josh emmett's power is a little bit overrated not in the sense that if he lands clean on the chin, you're not going to go out. You probably will go out. It's just that in 15 pro fights, he only does have four knockouts. So there's that way of looking at it. But then there's the other way, which is the way I look at it, which is most of his career was spent at 155 pounds. And ever since he did make that switch to featherweight, I feel like the power's been translating more. And I feel like that's kind of the opposite for Michael Johnson because Michael Johnson's power was really translating at 155 pounds. I mean, they used to call him Blackie out for a reason. I mean, you remember that combo he hit on Dustin Poirier. That's the fastest I've ever seen Michael Johnson look. And since that point, it seems like, look, he's still a solid top 15 guy, but he's not a perennial top five guy like he used to be. You know, because back when Benil beat Michael Johnson, Michael Johnson was the number five guy on planet Earth. Well, now it's it's, it's top 15. So it's not a huge decline. 
but it's still a little bit of a, of a step back, right? So I mentioned how Emmett's power has been translating since he dropped down. I mean, proof, knocked down Felipe Arantes 100 times, knocked out Ricardo Lamas. I could see Emmett knocking him down in the first round if Johnson's still trying to get his feel down, trying to get that timing. Emmett does throw big, big hooks, that side-to-side movement. Not to mention, I used to be under the impression that Josh Emmett was the kind of guy, he's got a hard head, you throw your hardest punch, you break your hand. Well, Jeremy Stevens kind of proved that false. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, where's Josh Emmett's confidence, man? I mean, maybe his chin shattered, maybe not, but where's his confidence at, man? The shit he went through was devastating. Michael Johnson has looked like he slowed down just a tiny bit, not too much, but just a little bit. His last few fights, he's still faster than most guys, but he's not as fast as he used to be. So I actually think it's a pick him for a reason. I'm going to lean towards Michael Johnson to just kind of out-volume Josh Emmett because Emmett does throw one shot at a time. He's a wrestler with an overhand, whereas Michael Johnson can put the combinations together. He can also stick and move really well. I'm going to go with Johnson to edge out this decision here. Now, next up in the middleweight division, we got the co-main event of the evening. David Branch is 22-5, and and Jack the Joker Hermanson is 18-4. and Currently, they got Jack Hermanson, minus 125. The comeback on Dave Branch is plus 105. Shaq, Jack Hermanson's been paying his dues. Now he's got a co-main event opportunity. You think he capitalizes here? Yeah, this is going to be a good fight. David Branch, number 11 guy in the world. He's coming off a loss to Cannoneer, you know, who was another unranked guy fight where, you know, he probably shouldn't have taken, but he did. And uh, he paid the consequences. Cannoneer was coming down from 205. And Cannoneer, low-key under the radar, had been fighting better competition than Branch. He had already fought Blakovich. He had already fought Reyes. And Branch was a step down from that. But he took the damage in that fight. And I think Branch... uh, in comparison to Hermanson, I will go ahead and say I think Hermanson's the hungrier guy. He's the unranked guy. Branch is the ranked guy. So, uh, and this is co-main event, man. This is uh, this is everything Jack's been working for. One thing I'll say about Jack is I'll go ahead and say I think he's one of the more prepared fighters in the 185-pound division. You know, I think his his camp, the Frontline Academy, you know, I think they come with very solid game plans. He's very aware of what's going on in there. And one thing I like about him is his heart. You know, he had those two losses in Brazil to Cesar Ferreira and Tiago Mejia Santos, one where he got arm-triangled by a third-degree black belt and the other where he got knocked out by one of the most prolific uh, KO artists the sport has ever seen. The fact that, you know, they sent him down there in Brazil again against Tyler Slatus, their hometown guy, another black belt. And the fact that, you know, Jack had every opportunity to quit in that fight. I mean, he had every opportunity to quit in that fight, and he chose not to. I think that already shows that he's got more mental fortitude than David Branch. You know, I think David Branch coming back into the UFC for the second stint, I low-key think he's accomplished everything he he wanted to. Um, He came back. He beat the number nine guy in the world at the time, Christoph Jocko. I don't want to say controversial because, I mean... It was just a very lackluster fight. I mean, you know, he held him on the fence. I mean, there's no shame in that. Do what you got to do to win. Uh, he clinched him against the fence. Jocko put his hands up. There was no uh, assertiveness to get off the fence. And he was able to to squeak out a split decision win. Then he fought the number one guy in the world and Luke Rockhold. And some people interpret uh, him tapping the strikes a lot differently. You know, some people say live the fight another day. But, I mean, look, I just know if you put a lot of other guys in that division, they just say, fuck it, knock me out. You know, there's no way I'm tapping. But David Branch shows the tap because, look, he's at the towards of the end of his career. He wants to make sure that, you know, he can make a couple extra paychecks without taking too much damage. And that's why he tapped. So 
you get a guy like Jack Hermanson, who historically, I mean, what happens when uh, Jack Hermanson gets on top of people? They get finished. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I see people saying, you know, Jack saying he has some of the best ground and pound is a joke. But, I mean, who's finished the most guys, man? <laughs> I mean, we're talking about you got to see who's finished the most guys with ground and pound. And, you know, Jack Hermanson's up there. You know, I think he's up there with the with the Rockholds and the Khabibs when it comes to that top game. So I think Branch, he's a good grappler, definitely black belt, Henzo Gracie. Um, but, you know, I feel like at this stage, you know, he's just pumping himself up like that typical later stage in the, in the career fighter that's pumping himself up, trying to prove that he uh, that he still has it, trying to prove to himself that he still has it. I think he can beat some lesser guys, but, you know, I just don't think he's going to beat Jack Hermanson. I think that Jack Hermanson's going to be aware of his overhand right with his footwork, bust him down with kicks early. I think he's going to force Branch to want to shoot on him. If he does take Jack Hermanson down, I feel like that would be a good strategy for Jack, man. I think that as long as they're a clincher in the tie-up, at some point Jack Hermanson will get on top of him. We saw Christoph Jocko trip David Branch. We saw Luke Rockhold eventually take him down. And uh, his fight with Cannoneer, when he couldn't get those takedowns anymore, I mean, he was getting stuffed out on, and uh, he was giving up on those takedowns. I mean, I know Cannoneer's a very strong guy, but so is Jack Hermanson. I think that at some point Jack gets on top of him and uh, makes him tap... Tap, actually, I don't want to say tap the strikes. I think the ref will intervene this time. But uh, I think Jack Hermanson takes advantage of this co-main event slot. I think that David Branch, David Branch's weapons are too basic, and I think his best days are behind him. And I, and I am questioning his motivation, you know. So I think that Jack comes out here and gets the biggest one of his career. Jack Hermanson's a guy that's really paid his dues inside that UFC octagon. I mean, he went to Brazil three times to fight some very scary dudes. Obviously didn't go his way against Cesar Mutanch or Tiago Maheda Santos, but he's a guy that put his head down, he grinded, and now he's got this co-main event opportunity, and I know they got that common opponent in my head of Santos, and you can sit here and give me your MMA math bullshit and talk about how, oh, Branch finished my head in the first round, and my head finished Jack in the first round, yeah, you're right, but the reality here is that when Maheda doesn't feel any threat by you whatsoever, it seems like he doesn't train for you. I mean, he thought Eric Spicely was a complete joke, didn't even do that fight at ATT, gets finished in the first round. He thought Dave Branch was a complete joke, the guy just tapped the strikes, Go watch that fight again. Tell me why Tiago Maheda had his hands down by his waist. Uh, I have no idea. I'm guessing it's because he thought Dave Branch was a complete joke. I know someone's going to be like, oh, because he was getting ready to stuff takedowns. Shut your fucking mouth. He was picking apart Dave Branch the entire time, but he had his hands down. These are four-ounce gloves. Dave Branch swings a big overhand right. I mean, that's Dave Branch has an overhand right in his arsenal. I'm not going to sit here and deny it. When you saw Maheda fight Hermanson, you saw he took that shit very seriously because he knows Hermanson is a threat. So that's my opinion of why, you know, shit went down how it went. But as far as Hermanson and Branch are concerned, you know, I've been reading a lot of comments online. I've been seeing people talk about how y'all must have forgot about David Branch. Oh, really? Please remind me exactly what I forgot about. Was it that time that he couldn't finish Chinny Vinny in WSOF? Was it that really shitty performance against Lewis Taylor? Was it that fight with Christoph Jocko where, I mean, the whole crowd is booing the entire time? Let's give him the Maheda win. Hey, you knocked out a guy with his hands down, but so what? That is Tiago Maheda. You went out there and did that. Props to you. What about against Luke Rockle? Now, let's talk about that tapping the strikes thing real quick because I have an opinion on it. So... He's back-mounted. Now, this this part we agree with. Live to fight another day. Okay, I, I, I can get behind that. You know, why take unnecessary damage, right? But. I I can't. Fuck it. Hold get on. Like the ref said 
move fighter, move fighter. So when the ref starts saying that, that means that if you do not move within five seconds, he will come in and stop the fight. So Branch already had that opportunity to know that, hey man, I'm just going to cover up, let the ref come in, no big deal. But after the ref warned him twice to move, then he taps the strikes. He didn't even want to wait for those five seconds for the ref to come in. And then you see Luke Rockhold's reaction. Luke's like, are you serious right now? After all that shit you talked about how you're going to beat me like you stole something and all this bullshit. Like, dude, he tapped the strikes. Okay, he comes back against my head. We already mentioned hands down by his waist, all that. Against Cannoneer. Now, it was a bit of a letdown spot. He was supposed to fight Jacare Souza, and then you get the call to fight Cannoneer. I get it, but listen, he was already he already had his camp behind him. He was already in shape. He even told Cannoneer after the fact, I didn't take you lightly at all. But what happened in that fight was when his overhand right and his wrestling wasn't working, he decided to go home again. This isn't the first time this shit's happened. You know what's interesting? How history repeats itself is that in Dave Branch's first UFC stint, he was 2-2. Two and two. Well, guess what? On his next stint, a million years later, he's also 2-2. Two and two. So he will always be a 500 fighter inside the octagon. Now it's going to be sub-500 because Hermanson's going to beat him. The way I see this fight going is, I actually think the first round is going to be a bit of chaos, man, because Hermanson comes out with that footwork and mixing in the leg kicks. You know Dave Branch, for the first five minutes, he's got a big overhand right. He's got a nice tie-up game. The difference here is that, as the fight progresses, I think Hermanson's still going to be in it. He's still going to be fresh, and I see Dave Branch wearing down. He's getting older. His next birthday, he turns 38. So I think that at some point, no matter what happens, Jack gets on top of him, and when he does, the fight will be over shortly after because Jack the Joker Hermanson, this is not a joke, my friends. He really does have the best ground and pound in the UFC middleweight division. I mean, those elbows to the side of the head, just the, the force on those punches. And I want to talk about the kind of heart Jack Hermanson has compared to David Branch. We already talked about David Branch, you know, tapping the strikes, looking for a way out against Cannoneer when the takedowns weren't working. Do you want to talk about the polar opposite of that? Just pull up a fight between Talis Latis and Jack Hermanson. So Jack Hermanson comes out there, looks amazing that first round with the striking, gets on top of him, wins the first round. But apparently he broke his rib in that fight. That's what Jack Hermanson said. I know a lot of people are saying he broke his foot or his shoulder. No, no. It was his rib. That's a direct quote from Jack Hermanson. Second round comes out. They get into one tie-up exchange. You see Jack grimacing. It's like, oh, man, this fight's over. You know what, Jack? You did good in that first round, but let's live to fight another day like Dave Branch did. Let's just uh, let's tap out real quick. And, you know, it just wasn't your night. Well, Jack Hermanson didn't have that mentality. Jack Hermanson hangs on that second round, comes back in the third round. First, <laughs> first strike he throws is a flying knee when this guy has a broken rib. Okay, that's the kind of heart he has. Then he gets caught in a dar choke, gets caught in an arm triangle, escapes all those submissions. And by the way, he had beautiful submission defense there. And when he got on top, the fight was over. So that's the kind of heart Jack Hermanson has. He can finish you with a broken rib, whereas Dave Branch gets in one bad spot and, you know, he looks for his way out. So I actually do have Jack Hermanson here. I agree with him being favored, and I think he stops David Branch. Hey guys, Dan here. Just wanted to let you know that Kyle Marley's bets are available at bestfightpicks.com. As you guys know, he's in the midst of a 200-unit run. One unit equals $100, not 1% 1 of your bankroll. And this weekend, for only $24, he has three bets available, two underdogs, and a slight favorite. Make sure you tail this historic run at bestfightpicks.com. Main event of the evening in the lightweight division. We got Edson Jr. Barboza. He's 20-6. and six. And Justin the Highlight Gaethje is 19 and 2. Shaq, both these guys coming off some very brutal finishes. Two of the most exciting guys in the history of the sport and the lightweight division. Winner is going to get the all violence bragging rights. I got to know who takes it, man. Gaethje or Barboza? We know who has the all violent belt right now, bro. <clears throat> That's Dustin Poirier. 
He uh, <laughs> Gaethje uh, lost that belt. But anyways, uh, this fight's going to be a good fight, man. Pretty much that typical uh, power Brazilian uh, striker with the flash knockouts versus the you know, imposing uh, longer term better fighter uh, that, you know, does take big shots. But uh, we know that if he can get to a certain state, um, considering Edson Barbosa's history, that Edson might uh, gas out and break like he has many times in the past. I mean, this ain't just many times. This is dating back since uh, 2012 when my boy Jamie Varner beat his ass. It's been a consistent problem with Edson, uh, you know, for a long time. I feel like their last fights were very similar in a sense of Gaethje has the losses to number three, number four guy in the world. Edson had losses to number one and the number five guy in the world. And then they took that big step down in competition and they both showed out. What was a lot cleaner was, though, Gaethje finished his guy in the first round. But Edson, although he fucked, he fucked Hooker up very badly. I mean, there was moments where Hooker had some success in that second round. It's because Edson doesn't like that pressure, man. He uh, he needs a rest, like we kind of said with uh, Shaman Marais earlier. A lot of the, I mean, a lot of those Brazilian power strikers, man, they have to take that little break, and Edson's one of the big cases of that. So I think that the early stages of this fight are definitely going to be, you know, some hold your breath moments. I mean, look, Edson can knock anyone out, um, and Gaethje is definitely. You know, he's going to be fighting in a phone booth. Edson's going to be letting off on some serious left hook, right right hooks, and they're going to have some big power on him. You know, I see Edson probably getting the better of that first round. But I think towards the end of the first round, I do think the pressure will start to get to him like it always does. And, you know, Gaethje has a lot of power in his hands. You know, I think a lot of people don't realize that. I feel like people think uh, that he's a bad athlete or something, but I think that he generates a serious amount of power in his hands. I mean, look, he hit Dustin with one right hand, and Dustin looked off into uh, space for a second, man. So Gaethje's power is definitely very underrated. I don't think things have really changed for Edson. I know he's got a new camp now. He's got a new team behind him. Things are... Honestly, the same. You know, I think he just fought a considerable step down in competition. Now, one would counter me with the same thing with Gaethje. But I think Gaethje in his two losses, I personally, in comparison to a lot of guys that get knocked out and take two L's in a row, I personally thought he gained a lot of stock in those L's. You know, I know he lost those fights, but I thought that he actually got better in those fights. Uh, The Eddie fight, I think he would have won a decision. But, you know, I feel like that was first L time. I mean, I predicted Eddie to win that fight. And I think that he finally had to learn that lesson. It's, look, you can't eat every shot. And I think in the Dustin fight, he came a lot better. And then Vic, he got that first round knockout. So I actually favor Justin Gaethje to win this fight. I think the pressure will get to Edson Barbosa. I think that Edson will have a good first round. But I see Edson doing the same thing that he's done always in his career, not responding well to the pressure, not responding well to the blood, not responding well to the damage. Gaethje responds well to all those things, man. You know, I think Edson's best chance is to catch him with a knee somewhere in the early rounds. But uh, if that doesn't happen, I think it's going to be smooth selling for Gaethje. And I think it's going to get really ugly uh, once it hits the second and third rounds. And I think Gaethje will have another... uh, a performance of the year type fight, man. So I got Justin Gaethje to win this fight by third round knockout. Justin Gaethje is a guy that has 16 knockouts on his record. And obviously, when you talk about uh, someone like Edson Barboza, I mean, one of the greatest knockout artists in the history of the sport, the guy's got 12 knockouts on his re- on his record. So you're talking about two guys that don't like going the distance. And I don't expect this fight to go the distance either. I feel like the early going... Edson's going to have a speed advantage. He's going to catch him with some very hard shots. 
the thing here is that Justin does have that style that historically has given Edson Barboza fits, which is that pressure style. Now, it's easier said than done to just go in there and pressure a guy like, like Edson Barboza. I know Dan Hooker tried to have a technical uh, Muay Thai match with him, and you saw how that went down, but this ain't no Dan Hooker, man. Now we're talking about a real top five guy. And what's interesting to me is that Gagey doesn't care what you throw at him. And with, with, with Barboza, it's not that he's got a gas tank issue. That ain't the case at all because I know this guy's out there running his miles. He's a consummate professional. You see the shape he's in. It's not a cardio issue. It's that he literally believes in his striking so much that he throws everything as hard as he can. And he'll just, he'll, he gets excessive with it. Like after he throws a body kick, it's not enough to just, okay, I landed the body kick. Let's take a couple steps back, reset and breathe. No, it's a fucking body kick, a two, three, a spinning hook kick. Like he exaggerates a little bit. And sometimes when it lands, you see some of the best knockouts you've ever seen. But when it doesn't land, that's when the gas tank, the cardio starts to diminish a little bit because it takes so much effort to throw those huge fucking strikes. And Gaethje will be open to some of them because he, he has to be. He's going to be standing right in Barboza's face. But if Gaethje is not knocked out in the first round and a half, man, I really do see him taking over this fight and putting that pressure on Barboza and just hitting him with shots and just that nonstop pace because I feel like for Barboza to have success, you need to fight him in space. You know, he throws a combo, you throw a combo. You know, like fucking Dutch drills, you know what I'm saying, man? But here, this is different. You turn it to You turn it into a brawl. You stay defensively responsible, and I think that's the that's the game plan. That's the blueprint to beat a guy like Edson Barboza. And I know Lee and Khabib exposed it in terms of the wrestling, and Justin is a D1 wrestler, although he's never shot a takedown in his UFC career. Maybe that starts here, maybe not. I'm not going to put any stock into that. But stand-up-wise, the guys that put the pressure on him, the Michael Johnsons, the Tony Fergusons, even Benil before he got caught, are the ones that have the most success. I think that Gaethje... Follows that exact game plan, goes in there just with his own little twist on things, with his own little style. More leg kicks. This is going to be one of the first times in a while you see someone confidently throwing leg kicks at Barboza. I know Hooker threw a couple, but come on now. This is a this is a different level athlete than Dan Hooker. So I see Justin Gaethje getting a TKO here. And one interesting quote I heard from Justin Gaethje, and this is actually uh, for all you for all you gamblers out there. I, I was actually interested. I was I was kind of fascinated by Gaethje saying something like this. He said. If Edson Barbosa and I fight 100 times, I take his soul 80 times, and he knocks me out 20 times. So basically what, what Gaethje saying, he's saying that he should be a minus 400 favorite here. He's saying that he has an 80% chance to win this fight. I'm not sure if it should be that high, but I just do think that if he doesn't get knocked out in the early going, that he does have the style to come out here and physically wear down the very explosive Edson Barbosa. So I'm going to... I'm going to go with Justin Gaethje for the upset here, Shaq. Well, now we got to hit up Kyle Marley for the Big Marley Minute. And joining us now on the Big Marley Minute is Big Marley himself, Kyle. One of the most exciting fights in lightweight history is going down this weekend in Philly. And uh, let's get down to business. How's it going? Hey, not bad. This is our last fight of, like, what was it, 12, 13 weeks in a row. So I want to go out on a win before this break next week. And then we got UFC ATL the week after that. Uh, so I'm pumped. Man, it's just really exciting times. I mean, obviously the fans know we will be there at UFC ATL, Shaq and I. are still trying to convince Kyle Marley to make the trip, but maybe after a big win this weekend, we'll be able to successfully do that. Because, man, Edson Barboza is taking on Justin Gaethje, and I don't even need to talk these guys up. I don't need to talk about how they're two of the most uh, impressive knockout artists in the history of the lightweight division. Every single fight is exciting. Who do you give the edge to? 
Uh, I'm going to lean with the underdog here. Uh, I think on the feet, it's going to be it's just going to be awesome. Barbosa is going to be way better at range. Both of them have awesome leg kicks. Uh, I think Barbosa has the best kicks in the history of the UFC. I mean, in the world, really. Um, but Gaethje's not going to let him use a lot of those kicks, I think. He's going to be pushing the pace, pressing forward, and making Barbosa go backwards to where he can't use the kick. So that's what I see going down. And I think Gaethje could also use his wrestling because uh, we know that's a weakness of Barbosa's. If he was smart, I think that's what he should do. Uh, and I like that he's $800 cheaper on DraftKings. This is definitely an all-in fight, though. If you're making 10 lineups, you got to use both of them. Even if you have no confidence in one, I would still go at least nine with your favorite guy and then one with the other as a hedge because there's no way the winner of this fight isn't on the optimal lineup. The only way that the person who wins doesn't 10x their scores if it's like a I mean, even that, even if it wasn't eye poke in the first round, they're still going to 10x. So I have no, <laughs> there's no way they're not going to 10x. You got to be all in on this fight. Um, stack it in cash games. It's going to be well over 100 points combined. But if I was just making one lineup, and you do have to use this this fight, that's the problem. But I would go Gaethje if I was just making one lineup. Just give me the underdog. Uh, we're going to have to pick him, and he's one of my favorites of the week. So there's a really intriguing featherweight matchup between Michael Johnson and Josh Emmett going down as well. Obviously, we know Josh Emmett's been through a lot the last year. But Michael Johnson, uh, he's very hot and cold. Sometimes he'll go out there and beat Dustin Poirier, but other times he'll lose to Reza Madadi. So how you see it going down? Yeah, I think it's a pretty close one, but I like Johnson. I mean, there's so many unknowns right now with Emmett and after that last knockout and the injuries he had. Um, what's that going to do to his confidence as well? Um, but I'm kind of, I'm trying, I'm trying to look past that and just look at what I've seen with these guys. And I still slightly favor Johnson. I think, um, it could be a super close split decision fight. Uh, I think Emmett's got more power, but he could just as easily get knocked out because of his last fight. Um, so it's definitely a tough one, but I'm leaning Johnson here. He's actually my free bet of the week. Uh, I got one unit on him at, I think minus 105, 106, something like that. Um, and I think he's just going to get it done by decision. I think he's going to outpoint Emmett. And I mean, I, I don't know, maybe he could go out there and get a knockout in the first round. That's kind of what we would want in DraftKings as a, is a knockout from MJ, but I'm not sure he's quite going to get there with DraftKings. I could see it being like a, uh, 75 to 80 point decision win for him. And at $8,400, that might not be enough. So I'll definitely have a little bit of them, but this could be a fight to avoid in DraftKings and just let everybody else soak up the ownership. So Kyle Marley's giving out a free bet on Michael Johnson right here, right now, on half the battle. Another fight to me that seems really close on paper is Carolina versus Michelle Watterson, man. I mean, obviously, you know, Michelle Watterson's looking the best she's ever looked. Carolina does have the win over the champion, Rose Namajunas. So now these two are going to meet in Philadelphia. Who you got? Yeah, it's going to be another one um, that I'm looking forward to. I like that Watterson's going to be the one looking to get it to the ground. We need, we don't, well, sorry, we need underdogs. So she's one I like. Um, but I could see her getting another, like a 10 X one, just like Michael Johnson. So I'm not exactly sure, uh, what her upside is like for GPPs, but I do like her as a cash game play because I don't see her getting finished. I think we get three rounds out of her and I do think she's going to get at least one or two takedowns. So she's got a solid floor and that's what I like about her. So, this could be another fight to avoid in DraftKings for the big tournaments. If you're trying to win that $30,000, I don't know if the winner of this fight is going to be on it. But if I had to pick one of the two to be in my lineup, give me Watterson. I want the one that's going to be going for the wrestling. She does look in great shape. Um, and she'll be able to hold her own on the feet as well. But the floor is what I like the most, so give me her in cash games. 
So Marina Rodriguez is taking on Jessica Aguilar, and you know for a fact that I love picking against Aguilar every single fight. But that being said here, you look at that $9,100 salary for Marina Rodriguez, and you accept the fact that there's a good chance this fight does go all three rounds, and that Marina is exclusively a striker. So now my question for you is, over the duration of a three-round decision, a striking heavy one, will that be enough to cover the $9,100 salary? Nah, if it goes to a decision, I think she's going to have a hard time paying that off. Uh, but I think she can finish this fight. If she can get a finish, then she could pay it off. And I don't see her being highly owned, so I like that about her. Um, but yeah, like if it does go three rounds and she wins 30 to 27, she's not going to pay off that $9,100 price tag, I'm thinking. It'll probably be closer to like 80 points, and we can't really have that if we're paying that much for her. Uh, she still is my preferred play. But if you think Aguilar can go out there and get takedowns and steal a decision, then you got to play her because not only do we like grappling for DraftKings, but she'll be super low on. She's real cheap. And, I mean, that is her path to victory, get this fight to the ground. So I don't really hate either side, but it's a good fight to fade, I think. But I'll take Marina, though. I think she's going to get done by, like, third-round TKO. So speaking of expensive salary caps, you got Desmond Green here against Ross Pearson. He's 9,300. So... Right off the bat, you know that Dez loves fighting to the level of his competition, and oftentimes it is a very close decision. You think he's going to have uh, that emphatic signature win here, or you think there's another Dez Green fight? And maybe even be sneaky and take Ross. Uh, I mean, I think this is definitely Green's fight to lose. I'm just worried about him not going out there and getting takedowns. If he can go out there and get takedowns, then he can pay off that $9,400 uh, and dominate this fight. He is the better fighter, especially at this point in Ross's career. Um, he's a way better wrestler, but if he's going to try and strike with Ross for three rounds, this could be closer than the line indicates. So I'm not exactly sure what to do with this fight. I, I would say my preferred play is Pearson because he is live here at such big dog odds. He's super cheap. Um, you got to like that. And if he can steal the decision, it really doesn't matter too much what he scores as the cheapest guy. He has a good chance of being on the optimal lineup. So I'd say he's my preferred play, but I think everyone's fading green this week. If he can go out there, maybe even knock out Pearson, um, he could kill a lot of the field by not being on him. So I, I'm going to end up having some green lineups, but it's more uh, an ownership thing. I was going into this week thinking I'm going to fade green too. He just doesn't put up big points. He's putting up like 60 points, and that's not going to do it at his price tag. Um, so I'm, I'm really only interested in him being at a low price, and I'm pretty confident he gets the job done. Uh, pick is green, but I would say the better DraftKings plays Pearson. Another fight that I think has the potential to maybe be fight of the night is Enrique Barzola versus Kevin Aguilar. Now, my question for you is, do you see one guy having such a significant edge that he's going to dominate this fight? Or do you also think that this has the potential to be another back-and-forth fight of the night? Yeah, if Aguilar can keep it on the feet for a good portion, it could definitely be back-and-forth. Uh, he could even knock him out. Uh, but yeah, this is a fight I like a lot for DraftKings. Uh, everyone's going to like Barzola. He goes out there. I mean, he's gotten... 10 takedowns, 5 takedowns, 9 takedowns, 7 takedowns, uh, 5 takedowns. So there's really nothing not to like about Barzola on DraftKings. He's going to be super highly owned. People love his grappling. I'll have him too. Uh, I am picking him to win this fight. But nobody's talking about Aguilar, and this isn't even line for a reason. So I'm going to have a good amount of Aguilar too because if he wins at maybe 15, 10 to 15% ownership, he's also going to kill off like 50% of the field that's on Barzola. So that's what I really like about Aguilar here, and I do think he does have the better uh, striking skills. He could go out there, get a knockout, or if he can stuff takedowns, he could win. 
uh, a decision with his striking. But what I don't like, he's not, he's not going to be going for takedowns. So you got to like Barzola for that side. Uh, it's just an ownership thing. You're not being sneaky by playing Barzola, thinking that he's good at takedowns. Everyone's going to be on him. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's just a good fight to target in general. I'll have more Barzola, but I will be taking shots on both sides. Kevin Holland's taking on Mershart. And what's interesting to me is I actually kind of respect uh, my boys up at DraftKings for not putting Kevin Holland you know, up in the, in the 9,000s for this uh, salary because he does have the tendency to play around too much. I know he's got all the skills to finish all these guys he's fighting. It's just about is he going to actually go out there and do that this time? Yeah, I mean, this is another great fight to target. We got minus 260 fight doesn't go to decision. Holland's definitely the better fighter. Um, he should kick Mirashart's ass on the feet. Um, and, I mean, he's got a solid ground game, too. I think he'd be able to go out there and get takedowns and be fine on top. But it's more dangerous if he's going to do that. And like you said, I mean, he's not the sharpest tool in the box, so he could go out there and get submitted. So I like both sides of this fight. If I was making one lineup, it would be Holland. But, I mean, if Mirashart wins, he's definitely going to pay off his price tag because it's going to be a finish. I don't see him winning a decision here. Uh, but got to go with Holland. If he wins as well, it's going to be – high scoring, and I just think this is another good fight to go all in on if you want to, or even nine of your ten lineups, whatever it may be. Uh, but picking Holland by finish. I'm going to get you out of here on this, Kyle. So you get to pick between these two fights. Whichever one you want to break down, go ahead. Obviously, Moroz versus Mazzo, and then Perez versus De La Rosa. Out of those two fights, is there anything you want to tell us? Um, oof. Well, I guess let's just go with the, close, the closer uh, lined fight. Uh, with Mazo Moroz, it's not an interesting fight at all. It's probably the fight you want to skip on the card, really. But if I had to pick a side here, I'm going to take Moroz. I'm really not impressed with either of these ladies. Um, I think Mazo's probably got the better hands. Uh, but, they're I mean, they're really not good. I don't see her finishing with her hands at all. She's going to have to get another kick like she has in her other two knockouts. Uh, but I, I don't see that happening either. I think if she wins, it's probably going to be by outstriking Moroz. Uh, Moroz throwing it air a little bit too much. And if Moreau's wins, I think it's going to be by submission. So I like the underdog here. I think she's got the higher ceiling. It's just really hard to want to invest in her because if she doesn't get that submission, she's going to lose or put up like 50 points on a win, and that's not going to do you any good either. But um, if I had to choose one of the two, I'm going to take the underdog, and I think she's live here. And that's why you are the DraftKings guy for half the battle. Well, Kyle, it's going down this Saturday in Philadelphia. An amazing card. And this week, your bets are only 24 bucks at bestfightpicks.com. That's right, man. Let's get it. Got some underdogs going there. We'll get a break next week, and then we'll start crushing again for UFC ATL. Yes, sir. They can follow you at Big Marley 3. Kyle, we'll speak very soon. And that's why Big Marley is the DraftKings guy for half the battle. Well, Shaq, now we got to talk about the fight to watch and the fighter to watch. So what is the fight to watch for UFC Philly? My fight to watch is going to be uh, Kevin Aguilar versus Enrique El Forte Barzola. Look, you got a 16-1 guy against a guy like El Forte who you know they're looking to push on that Latin American market. And look, this might be fight of the night. When you got a country, uh, you know, uh, Hispanic American versus a Peruvian warrior, you know, there's a good chance it's a bloodbath and uh, kind of similar to the Mowgli fight, possibly, you know. So I think that, that there's a good chance that that's fight of the night. Yeah, there's no chance I'm going to be missing out on Kevin Aguilar versus Enrique Barzola. For me, my fight to watch is the people's uh, all-violence first fight of the night, and that's Sodiq Yusuf versus Shaman Morais. I mean, re remind me the last time you saw a boring fight between those two. And the winner of this fight is really going to emerge a featherweight contender because you're talking about a guy in Sodiq Yusuf who... 
obviously the level of competition he's been fighting. I mean, he ran through that Suman Mokhtarian guy, but now against Shaman Marais, one of the most underrated guys in the division, he gets a win here. We're looking at a top 20 spot for Sadiq Youssef, and similarly for Shaman Marais, been flying under the radar. He gets a win over, over Sadiq Youssef. That's a three-fight win streak. That guarantees him a big fight next. And not to mention, these two are going to stand and bang until one man falls. So for that reason, Sodiq versus Shaman is my fight to watch. Well, Shaq, who is your fighter to watch for UFC Philly? My fighter to watch is going to be Casey Kinney. Look, he's got the opportunity to come out here and make big waves in his UFC debut. I mean, this guy was just fighting on the local scene last Friday. Not to mention, I think everyone remembers when he got absolutely robbed on Contender Series and how bad... We all fell for him, and the fact that he went out to the local scene, you know, he didn't make excuses. He earned his way back, and now, you know, he's fighting Borg, who this is like his, what, third, fourth opponent? It's a good recipe, so Casey Kinney's my fighter to watch. If he can pull off this win, holy shit. Yeah, I mean, that would be incredible just to come out here and be, maybe not in terms of the betting lines, but in terms of the public perception, it would be one of the biggest upsets of the year. To Last week, he was fighting an LFA, knocking some guy out with a knee. And now uh, potentially going out there beating the former number one contender. So he can do that. Holy shit, I agree with you. For me, my fighter to watch is Jack the Joker Hermanson. This is a guy that's paid his dues inside the octagon. He's gotten finished twice against some very tough competition. And he's had the opportunity to be like, you know what? Maybe this ain't my thing. Maybe, you know, I, I gave it my best shot. I had that run on the Euro scene. Shit didn't quite work out inside the UFC. Well, that, that wasn't the case at all because every single time this guy faced defeat, he came back better. And I feel like now... The version we're seeing of Jack Hermanson, the in-his-prime Jack Hermanson, very deadly fighter, very vicious, and not to mention he comes out there with those game plans and that ground and pound. So for that reason, Jack Hermanson is my fighter to watch. Well, Shaq, it's going down this Saturday, UFC Philly. It's going to be on ESPN. And, uh, man, it's going to be all violence. I cannot wait. They can follow you at MMA Genius 05. They can follow me at Best Fight Picks. Go to bestfightpicks.com for the plays. Got some good plays this weekend. Subscribe to Half the Battle on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thank you guys so much for all the support. As you guys know, we will be in attendance at UFC 236 in Atlanta, Georgia. So if you all are going, make sure you hit us up. And until the next time, let's cash these bets.